Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Flynn Coleman, who quite literally is a Renaissance woman. Flynn's work emphasizes the importance of paying attention to the interwoven threads which tie everything together. In her groundbreaking book, The Human Algorithm, How Artificial Intelligence is Redefining Who We Are, Flynn explores in equal parts both cutting-edge technology and the age-old question of what it means to be human. She tackles the impact that technology, AI, and algorithms are having on human rights. Her work points to evidence which suggests that many of these effects are actually detrimental and insidiously infecting our society with discriminatory biases. Well, it's not all bad. According to Flynn, she also believes that building a better, more inclusive world for all of us has never been more possible than it is today. So, you may ask, what can we do? First and foremost, we can use the powerful technologies of today and tomorrow to empower the marginalized and close the digital divide. Additionally, we can choose to channel our frustration and grief over global injustice into meaningful action. And on an even simpler level, Flynn says that striving every day to do our best in treating everyone with kindness, empathy, and compassion can and will make a world of difference. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we discuss the interconnectedness of Earth's many living systems, that being humanity and beyond, the nature of artificial intelligence, including its benefits and its detriments, and the complex intersection between technology and human rights. I truly enjoyed this fascinating conversation with Flynn, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, I bring you Flynn Coleman. Flynn Coleman, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great. It's such an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. I'm really excited to be talking to you here, Flynn, because a lot of the work that you do is about investigating and thinking about the human condition. And so I'd like to start our conversation simply by asking you, in your own words, how do you describe who you are? This is, of course, the big question. And to me, it's very much an evolving one. One of my mother and my favorite phrases that we have, we've, we've used kind of between us since we saw it on a billboard when I was a kid is keep evolving. And I think so much about that because who I am is, is so many different things. And I think especially, of course, as a woman, there is a tendency uh, to put certain groups of people within certain boxes. And I think that making room for being all parts of who a person is, is so important. And I also think that who I am is so much tied up in this interconnected web of life and who we all are. As, of course, you saw from my book and my work, I speak a lot about Humans is tied to the animal world, to our natural world, to the environment and world around us. And so I think that this, this ever-evolving and growing understanding and really living that question, as Raina Maria Rilke would say, of who I am is so important. And that changes day to day and month to month and year to year. And so I like to think of myself and believe it's so critical for us all to think of ourselves as within this web of these small earth creatures tied up in this web with every other living creature. And I also like to think of myself as 
is always becoming and evolving, but at the same time, having those core principles of what I believe and what I'm fighting for every day, justice, equity, uh, human rights, environmental rights. And so who I am, I think is, I think of it as a question that I'm trying my whole life every day to answer. And I know I'll never get there, but trying to leave room to I would say to be better every single day in any way I can and to be serving others along the way is how I think of myself. I love that thoughtful response. It's interesting because I think the question that your work speaks to is how do we as a human race become better? How do we essentially progress in such a way where we're uplifting each other collectively? And so I think your response to that question really speaks to I think that value that you hold of embetterment collectively. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, that is so thoughtful as well. Thank you. Because what I always say about my book, for example, or my work, because there are so many questions, of course, around the future of human rights, the future of technology, the future of our societies and our worlds. And what I say about my book and my work is that we don't know what's going to happen. The only thing that we know for sure is that things change and uncertainty is, is, is what it means to be human, is to live within that uncertainty. And it's funny that you said that because what I always say is, but no matter what, we can learn how to treat each other better. No matter what technology comes, no matter which government is in power, no matter what we're able to control or not control, we can constantly, every day, be on that never-ending path of how do I treat someone better today? How can we learn to treat each other better? And I'm including within that crucible, yes, the entirety of human civilization, but also the world around us, our planet, our natural systems, the animals around us, how we treat those that can do nothing for us, so goes the quote, is really kind of what our character is. And so I do believe that no matter what happens, we can learn to treat each other better every single day, learning a little bit more about how to do that. Yeah, and what's really curious about your perspective, Flynn, is that it's deeply empathetic. And so can you kind of talk about where empathy comes from? Is it specific to something you've experienced? And maybe fold that out and talk about where empathy comes from and what it means to you and how we can kind of better understand that. I think that there is certainly a cacophony of voices that come to mind, like an interwoven, you know, like patchwork quilt of stories. I lived in Italy playing soccer when I was younger, and I lived with a family that had experienced a lot of discrimination, and they did so much to help me understand what the meaning of home is, the way that they cared for me while I was in their care, the way that they treated each other, the way that they treated me, no matter how they had been treated by society. And I've had conversations with people around the world, which is like truly my great joy to learn about people, what their lives are like, because we all have different lived experiences and empathy is a learned trait, like creativity. It's something that we have to practice because we are fallible human beings that are biomechanically trained to survive and to favor our own in-group. And we all have these prejudices and biases. And every day that we live in the world, you know, we're taught to close off more and more. 
So it's very much a practice of being aware of that and facing that and trying every day to counteract those parts of ourselves that, that are in the shadows. That's all part of, of who we are. And so this idea of empathy or of compassion is really a practice to see yourself in the other and to see the other in yourself. But for me, it's everything. And to see also that we are part of this trellis that we can't extricate ourselves from. I mean, my grandpa, for example, was a milk and cookie delivery man, and he also sold insurance and worked security at night to make ends meet for his family. And anything I'm able to do is because of what he did to make that possible, and so on and so forth, with people I'll never even know their names that built the roads that I was able to drive on or did all of that work so that we could come together in this way. And thinking of ourselves as part of that web is so, so critical, but it is a practice because, you know, now is a perfect example. I mean, I, like everyone else, I feel rage and grief and the devastation all around us. And the question is, how do we channel that into action towards empathy and towards justice? It truly is a practice and every day moving more towards treating each other better is critical because we see with something like a global pandemic, the true nature laid bare that someone else's health is connected to your health, which is connected to the health of the wildlife habitats all around us. When those grow smaller, we have pandemics that begin. When we don't treat wildlife well, when we don't treat each other well, when we don't have public health systems and these social safety nets, that affects all of us. And so, you know, what I always say about what's going on now is the systems aren't broken. They were just only designed to work for certain people. So empathy is for others, and it's also for ourselves, because we are all tied up together in climate destruction, ecological collapse, global pandemics truly show us the nature of that and how this is absolutely essential. And who we are is how we treat others. This is, this is our, our fate and our destiny. How we treat others is eventually that reflection of ourselves, which is why I'm interested in this idea of artificial intelligence. Part of why it fascinates me is because I believe technology is a mirror for who we are. Yeah, so let's talk about that, Flynn. Let's talk about your book, The Human Algorithm. What is the main message of the book? And more specifically, what was the catalyst for you to kind of want to write this book? And then we'll unpack it from there. It's interesting because you said so much of it in your wonderful questions and the way that you've designed your podcast, because I always say, yes, it's a book about the future of technology, but it's really a book about what it means to be human. I have been working at this intersection of technology and human rights, but for me, it's all bound up in environmental rights and also animal rights. And for me, so much of why I wanted to write the book was I wanted to bring this human perspective. And the story kind of begins when I worked at the Genocide Prevention Center. And we were looking at ways to use technology for humanitarian use. That meant satellite imagery at the time. And even when we had succeeded and trained in the software and had negotiated to get access to these satellites, and we were able to see what was happening on the ground, for example, a mass grave or a burnt out village. Even when we had succeeded in this, I just remember thinking, well, everyone is already dead and gone. 
we have to do better. And while having a record of who we are is so essential for this human rights work, I felt that we needed to do better. How could we prevent this atrocity? And my work with war crimes and crimes against humanity has shown me the worst of humanity, but also the best, the courage and the resilience. And so I wanted to bring this human perspective because the tools that are being built and are going to affect all of us are still being built and led and managed by such a homogenous elite few in secretive labs and solely based on a profit economic model. And so few of us have a voice in the future that's being built for us all. And I wanted to say, we should all have a voice in our futures. We can all understand this. And I always say, if you don't walk away from my book, not just you know, educated and inspired, but also empowered to understand that you deserve a seat at the table, then I always say I didn't do my job because we all should have a voice in the future that's being created for all of us. And if we aren't creating societies and technologies and tools with justice and equity at their core, then we're heading down a path that is so dangerous for all of us. And we're already there. I mean, discrimination, bias, racism, sexism, ageism, ableism are already deeply ingrained in the tools that we use, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so this idea of bringing not just a book that's an adventure and fun to read, but a way to say we all can and should take action to build a brighter future was so important because there's also brilliance all around us from the animal kingdom to all these different ways that we can be builders of a brighter future. And so that's what I wanted to bring that, that human perspective. Yeah, I think your perspective's great. And what's really great about your book is that it talks about how human beings are a node in a network and that the decisions that we make impact and influence everything around us. And so as long as we understand and believe that we have a sense of agency, we're able to positively impact our environment as long as we're paying attention. And so let's talk about AI specifically. What are the benefits and what are the detriments of it? How do you kind of think about it? Yes, and I just want to say what you said just now was incredibly important because agency and opportunity is so critical. And you said the key, which is to pay attention, right? Our job is to pay attention to the world around us, to wake up, to bear witness to what is going on around us. That's the record of who we are. And to be able to pay attention, especially as the attention economy is primed to strip us of our agency and to tell us what to pay attention to. And the sensationalism, that is what gets amplified online. So the danger is so real because it's exactly as you said, Mary Oliver says it in her poetry, Rilke says it, Rumi says it, it's all about paying attention and waking up. So I just think what you said is so critical and bearing witness to humanity in ourselves and others so we can have that record, uh, which is why looking at history is so important so that we're able to say, this is who we are. This is a record of also the horrible things that have happened. So we, so we might protect ourselves from those things ever happening again, but also to pay attention because there's much in our world right now that is trying to distract us from the truth of, of who we are and what matters. So I really, I wanted to really hone in on that because I think that's so, it's so critical and can be so difficult to do. And so back to your question about 
the good and the bad. So chapter five and chapter six of my book are kind of the mirror images of each other. My editor's favorite chapter actually happens to be chapter five, which is all of the horrifying things that not only could happen, but the things that are already happening. I talk about the things already happening and then the things in the short, medium to long term that could happen. And the answer is so much of that danger is already here. I mentioned discrimination, bias, prejudice is already so real and infecting our tools and our systems with the racism and all types of sexism, ageism, ableism. I mean, when we think about the fact that so much of this technology is being built by people that only went to the same two schools. So we don't even have cognitive diversity in what we are building, let alone the the not just diversity, but radical inclusion and representation we're going to need across ages and genders and socioeconomic status from nations large and small, from the global north and the global south. We have to be so much more radically inclusive because discrimination from the criminal justice system to even who gets access to the internet and these digital tools, of course, something we're seeing laid bare right now as some people are able to move to remote schooling and work, but some 40% of the world doesn't even have reliable access to basic internet. And then, of course, the algorithms that are already discriminating, who can get a mortgage loan, who can be detected in an image based on your race. There's so many examples that are here across the board. And AI is no one thing. It's different tools across different industries. So aviation and agriculture is going to be different than education and government. And again, it's being built in such homogenous silos by such a homogenous group of people. And I also think that one thing important to point out is that we, I love sci-fi. I'm a huge fan. Uh, It's strewn throughout the book. As you know, I think that sci-fi has so much to teach us about what we can imagine for our possible futures, both good and bad. But, you know, we often think or hear in the headlines about things like the robot Terminator armies coming to get us. And that could happen and drone swarms and all types of terrifying things in weaponry and warfare, something I talk about a lot, are real and possible. But the truth is so much of the danger is insidious and unseen. And in that black box, that opacity where even the developers of AI don't even know how their AIs are reaching the conclusions that they're reaching. And AIs can speak to each other already without human intervention. So those insidious ways that they turn us against each other and make us pay attention to the things they want to sell us and those insidious ways that discrimination and bias creep into our systems, I think are so critical to mention because so much of what's dangerous about technology, and by the way, technology you know, fire is technology. Celestial navigation is technology. Fire is technology. We tend to think of it as a very narrow set of things, but technology are these tools we've been building since the beginning of history. One of the dangers right now, I think, is that we will no longer share the same truth and that we can all live in our filter bubbles. Propaganda is not new. It's been used for a very, very long time, but you can live in your Facebook filter bubble now. You can only read news that's been fed to you by an algorithm that's already tried to predict a more extreme version of what you already tend to believe. So when we have that and when we can't share a sense of truth, that is when our society fissures and fractures possibly beyond repair. 
from our democracies to our sense of community because we no longer share that reality and we don't have to. And we get siloed into a filter bubble that just reinforces what we already know. So we're not learning new things. We're not connecting with people that are unlike us, which is that incredibly important seed of where empathy and compassion and connection grows. So there are so many dangers separating us, making us think the other is dangerous. While it's the most ancient form of hatred and vitriol, it's being amplified so vastly with things like social media and these digital tools and technologies. And it was Dr. Paul Farmer of Partners in Health who said, you know, the root of all conflict lies in thinking some lives matter more than others. And that is at the root of things. And these tools have the danger to amplify that extremism, that tribalism, that otherism. And that is what we must be fighting against every single day to come together. So <laughs> those are just some of the horrifying things uh, that are already happening. Right, exactly. So as it pertains to this moment in this year of 2020, it seems like the world is burning, right? It seems like based on the news that we're watching, everything is going to hell in a handbasket. And so this is, in some sense, intentional. The social media platforms that we engage in, they are designed as their monetary structure. They are designed to essentially have us engaged in the content that's being shared on these platforms. So how do we then, as users of these platforms, not fall victim to confirmation bias and misinformation? How is it that we don't fall victim to this idea and this notion of sensationalism? In my view, it seems like a lot of that content that's being produced is either there to kind of scare us or make us angry. How do we protect ourselves from falling victim to confirmation bias and misinformation? Indeed, it's it's such an important question. Of course, we're seeing it play out in so many different ways, which is why it's chapter seven in my book that... We can't talk about any of these issues in isolation. So even if one is well-intentioned within a capitalist quarterly profit reporting-based system focused solely on profit, those are the tools that are going to be funded. Those are the tools that are going to be built. When people are siloed into their specific part of the assembly line, without training in human and civil rights and in the ethical implications, we are not going to get anywhere near where we need to be in terms of protecting our very humanity against these insidious threats. So seeing the connective threads there is so incredibly important. We can't talk about the technology without talking about the political and economic systems, the educational systems, the business systems that surround all of that. And there's so much of this that is so complex and so uncertain, which is why and why I devote a whole chapter to it. And many people are working every day on these issues and not just diversity, but radical inclusion, representation and equity and justice are so incredibly important because we can focus on that. There are things that we can do to have more lived experiences in the room and have more voices at the table to be able to check each other against the discrimination and the biases that are built into the system. The bad apples argument 
totally goes against the truth that this is systematic, rooted deeply into all of our systems, the bias, the discrimination, the racism, the sexism, it's systematic and so deeply entrenched. So our work is to bring that prismatic diversity of the voices in our world. And of course, one of the quote unquote radical parts of my book is I include the natural world and learning from the incredible natural ecological systems all around us that we are destroying at a rate that is so alarming in terms of existential crisis to our planetary health. And we're already seeing that play out. And so the key is that all of these systems, these questions and answers are truly interrelated. And for me, one of the things that I always say as a solution is that everything to me comes back to humane and ethical leadership. So not just the people building these specific or coding and programming the tools, but the leadership of organizations, of who gets funding, of who is in our governments representing who we are. Without that humane and ethical approach to leadership, we see what happens. We see that the inequities and the injustice They are so toxic and run through all of our systems if we don't have more humane approach to leadership. Because even if individually we want to do good, if we don't have systems that are supporting that and promoting that, it becomes incredibly difficult to do so. I mean, just one of many examples, but who gets access to funding? Of course, the vast majority of that goes to men, something like 3% of that VC funding goes to women. And it's almost 0% when you're talking about funding going towards Black women and Black women-owned companies, for example. So the entire system, right, is entrenched with so many biases that prevent us from hearing these different types of lived experiences, which is why I think humane leadership is so incredibly important. And that's governmental in politics, of course, but across economics, education, in our homes, in our families, in our school systems, and in our communities. And so for me, that is absolutely critical because we also, as a human civilization, to answer the other part of your question, have so much potential. If we work together, there's really no star we can't dream of exploring. We can use the tools around us to prevent poaching of animals, to come up with uh, systems to warn us of natural disasters that are on the way. And also goes back to what you said, agency and opportunity and the right to participate in our society. Because it's one thing to say, you know, oh, I'm going to opt out of Facebook because of all of the evil that it's doing. That is absolutely true. But on the other hand, you have millions of people just trying to get access to the internet. So this idea of opting out is not an option. These tools need to be focused around agency and access. And this is what human rights advocates, social justice advocates know and have been working on. They need to be in the room where these decisions are happening. Right. So opting out is not the answer. It's engagement. It's staying engaged in the technologies and engaging the decision makers to essentially have a better outcome. I think that's right. So let's talk about the nature of AI and the nature of technology, in particular, the pace in which it's developing. I mean, historically speaking, through the human trajectory of of evolvement, a technological advancement would happen once a year or once a month 
now we're dealing with an advancement in technology that's happening quite literally once a day. I just recently read that MIT's working on a chip that's going to give people content based on what they're thinking, which is unbelievable. How do we kind of think of the transformational nature of technology in that sense? Bakhtash, this is it. I mean, you've really honed into part of why this issue of technology or AI is so critical. Because again, technology is fire and irrigation. We've always worked with technologies and tools. But the key differentiator is that, for example, for the Industrial Revolution, we had 40 years to assimilate to the changes of that technological revolution. We have always, in some ways, embraced, in some ways, resisted tools, but we've had more time. We are not going to have nearly as much time to assimilate to the changes these tools are bringing. And it goes back to what you said right before you asked that question. The answer is to stay awake, stay engaged, and to have this awareness. We're also seeing this with the pandemic, same as we are with social media. We will eventually have many studies and a lot of evidence about what works, what this is doing to us, what this is doing to our brain circuitry, you know, how to work against this virus. But it's all happening so, so fast. And with AI in particular and the technologies, biotechnologies, all of the things happening now, we just don't have any time to assimilate. And so at a certain point, we reach a crossroads, especially when you're building intelligent technologies that might be smarter than we are or could ever be. We reach a point, an existential crisis, where we're building tools smarter than we are. And so this awareness and willingness to stay engaged, coupled with the honesty and transparency that we need and are not getting, is so incredibly important, which is why in crisis communications or, for example, in a global pandemic, honesty, transparency from leadership, action steps, listening to the science right? And understanding that is so critical because again, when we don't share the same truth and the same reality, facts become something that someone can call fake news. The irony is that companies are collecting our personal data at lightning speed, yet actual facts feel elusive. The other thing that's so dangerous about living in that world is that the whole process of science, the whole process of being a human being is growing and evolving and changing our mind and learning. And when we get so stuck in our filter bubbles, people become entrenched and aren't willing to evolve and to learn, not just to treat each other better, but to understand, okay, we have a new technology. This is what it's doing to us. What are we going to do now? And we're seeing so many gaps. I mean, the 2018 Facebook congressional hearings showed how far apart our technology giants are, right, from the senators and how those gaps in knowledge mean gaps in power and inequities and injustice that are just so incredibly dangerous. One of the things I think that's important you tapped into is what David White calls courageous conversations. So being willing to have those conversations to change our mind, to learn, to be open, which can be incredibly difficult in the worlds we are living in now. Another thing you said was incredibly important is that We're seeing with the global pandemic, for example, the dangers of individualism. We are, our health, our planetary health, our individual health, it's all tied up 
together. So we need to be learning how to work as a collective because cyber threats or a pandemic, you know, borders don't stop any of those things. And so if we want to have some type of accord from policy to leadership, we need to be working across borders and boundaries. And the irony being we have the tools to do that. You and I are connecting via tools that allow us to speak to each other in this way. But yet at the same time, more information and more tools moving so fast, but yet somehow we're regressing in terms of authoritarianism on the rise again, tribalism, extremism, because as you pointed out, that's what gets the clicks. The sensationalist extremist extremist views are what become highlighted online. So this danger in not thinking critically and compassionately towards each other is so incredibly dangerous for our future as societies and as human beings. Right, right. So let's talk about something specific to what you've shared with us in terms of what it means to be human. In particular, the tenderness of what it means to be human and our sense of empathy for each other that... I believe we're intrinsically gifted with and we can cultivate as long as we're aware of it and we practice it and we share it. Will AI ever be able to cultivate a sense of empathy? So without giving away the ending of the book, which talks about this, and I actually have a whole chapter devoted to this idea of empathy, and I suggest that one of the things we do try to do is to think about teaching these ideas of empathy, of compassion to the technologies we're building. And actually some researchers are attempting to do that by teaching them storytelling and all the stories that talk about who we are as a human civilization. And it could, again, it goes back to what you said, which is we don't know the answer to that is the short answer. We don't know if we could teach anything like empathy to our machines. But I do know that we can learn to become better to each other and to treat each other better when we try. And this is the same answer to something like hope or optimism or or trying amidst so much devastation and grief and suffering. And, you know, don't we want to go down swinging no matter what? And don't we want to learn how to treat each other better no matter what? So we don't know if the science is there to code something like empathy. There are certainly companies trying to do certain things like have AI read our expressions to learn more about who we are. And there's many studies and already research, you know, that uh, AI can detect your sexual orientation, for example, or how you're feeling. But that, of course has to do with doing that within a model of profit and productivity. And for me, it's about stepping back and reassessing our entire approach to success and productivity and profit. Because as you said, it doesn't tap into the tenderness of who we are. We are resilient and strong and courageous, and we are so flawed and so imperfect. And that is who we are. We are all of that. And one of the things that I suggest in my book is that we even move away from a human-centric approach to thinking about what it means to be humane. An octopus does things we could never do. 
Pigeons can solve puzzles and detect cancer in image scans. Bees and bee colonies um, have been called by some the most important creature on Earth. Trees and root systems teach us about communities. There's even slime mold that doesn't even have a central brain that might be the key to the future of transportation in cities. So when I'm talking about expanding our view, I'm talking about reveling in the majesty that is all around us on our one and only home. And that every day when we lose a species, we lose an opportunity to not only connect with what's around us, but to absorb that brilliance and to go beyond ourselves and to understand that there's a whole world out there that we not only have a responsibility to protect, but that can teach us about what it means to be humane and to solve problems together. So for me, that's so critical because just because something isn't the same as you, someone or something, it doesn't mean they're not equally deserving of all of that inherent worth and value. Sameness does not equate with value. Also, you don't have to be the center and the most special to also have that unique, glorious brilliance that we all have. That's so incredibly important. And kind of like solving justice and equity issues is so much about moving the marginalized to the center. And Tarana Burke and Brian Stevenson are two incredible social justice advocates that say those most proximate to the problems need to be most proximate to the solutions. So moving the marginalized to center, amplifying the voices of the most marginalized to me is the key. So when we're talking about a global pandemic, it's about protecting people in elder care. It's about protecting those in prisons. It's about protecting those with pre-existing conditions. When you keep that focus and the most vulnerable and marginalized at the center, that's the key to preserving our humanity and to building a brighter world. Flynn, this conversation has been great. And I'd like to kind of wrap up here by asking you one last and final question. What is your message for the world? I don't believe I would be the first to say that I would hope my life and my actions every day would be my message to the world. Um, however imperfect, always growing, always evolving, always every single day wondering with what I have now in this moment, who can I help and how? And learning each day to treat others a little bit better and learning every day to use what I have, no matter what it is in that moment, through my actions to be building a brighter world. And I think critically, it's a brighter world that I will never see. And what would our world look like if we were working to build a better future for the generations that will come after us for a world we will never see? What do we want to leave to the ages that we will never benefit from? And I think that that type of perspective, looking beyond oneself and having something to believe in that is beyond ourself is the key to moving forward. Because we are all bound up in this collective. We are all here for this very short amount of time. And, and individually, we're so small. But together, across time and space, there's so much that we can do. And so I would hope that message would be trying to do you know, whatever I could with whatever was before me in that moment every day to work towards building a brighter world that I, that I will never see, but that someone else might. Yeah. 
I think that's wise, compassionate, and deeply thoughtful. Flynn Coleman, thank you for the work that you do, and um, thank you for sharing your perspective today. Oh, the honor and pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for this conversation and for all that you do as well. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esaud. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation group. In this group, we discuss topics related to human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.